Would you pray with me before we begin? Father, give us your message for our lives this morning. Make me disappear. And speak directly to all of us gathered here as your worshipers. Let us so devour your word that it lives in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second part of the story of what's traditionally called a prodigal son. I really think there were two prodigal sons in this story. Last week, I quoted to you G.K. Chesterton, who said there are two two ways to go home. One is to stay there, and the other is to walk around the entire world until you get there again. And I said to you that there were basically two responses, two categories of people. One, that even though they go, there's a little part of them that stays, that remembers, that wishes they hadn't left. And then there's another category of people that even though they stay, there's a leaving And so neither of these sons is totally prodigal, and both of them are partly prodigal. Now let me give you this week the other side, and that is to say to you there are two basic general kinds of sinners. One has a propensity towards sins of activity, or sins of passion, if you will. They are spontaneous. They they act out. They... Um, um, don't necessarily plan ahead. They don't have a lot of breaks, reins in their lives. You know, they just go ahead and do it. The Bible is full of those kinds of sinners. David was a sinner like that. David was one of the sinners, that, greatest sinners that ever lived. Um, and he did not have uh, a lot of inner turmoil about what he should do. He decided, and then he did it. And when he came dancing in before Saul, he danced with such passion and such vigor and such activity that his skirts flew up, and he exposed himself. And uh, when he saw a woman named Bathsheba, he took her, and he had her husband killed. Didn't think ahead what that would do. But those people who are quick to sin are also quick to repent. And they realize it. And their grief is deep and genuine. When Nathan came to David and said, You are the man, David immediately crumbled in grief and cried genuine tears of repentance. Peter was a New Testament figure. I have a sermon called Crazy Pete. And because I never preach sermons twice, I'll probably, you'll ne- probably never hear it, but you'll hear him sprinkled throughout my sermons because he was nuts. I mean, Peter had no middle gear. Either he was all for it or all against it. Jesus told him he had to go get crucified. Peter hopped in front of him and said, forbid it, Lord. I mean, this is creator of the universe here. And he's forbidding Jesus. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, Peter gave this 
Academy Award-winning dramatic speech. Others may abandon you, Lord, but I never will. That 24-hour period, he denied vigorously that he ever knew Jesus Christ. And when the cock crowed, what happened? He was down on his knees, crying like a baby in repentance. And after Pentecost came, Peter stood up so big and so strong that when he preached, nobody was safe. See? So there are sinners of great vigor and great activity. And the first prodigal son was like that. But there are also sinners not of activity but of attitude. And the second prodigal son was like that. You see, for some of us, even though we don't sin with great activity, it's not holiness or goodness, it's cowardice. And so we can't claim to be any better. We can just claim to be more chicken. Unlike those who sin with great vigor and out in the open, and who mend their ways rather immediately... There is a smoldering in those who sin in attitude. They never quite catch fire big enough to burn up all the fuel. And so they smoke. They smoke. And their forgiveness does not come so easy. Their change in attitude does not come so easy. In the Old Testament, Michael, the wife of David, was one of those. When she saw him dancing like that, boy, she read him the riot act. Make a fool of yourself like that. Are you kidding me? Do you know how embarrassing that is? And she was miserable for the rest of their marriage. What did I do? Just righteous indignation. That's all that is. He shouldn't have done that. There was a sin of the spirit, see. There was a closed upness. There was no room for any repentance there because he was wrong and she was right. And she would passively but aggressively let him know that. Thomas was another one in the New Testament. What was Thomas ever famous for? Was he famous for some big sin he did like Judas? Or some big miracle he performed like Paul? No, he was famous for his doubt. That's what he did. I'll tell you what it takes to show me that Jesus is the Christ. Let him perform it and show me. See? You can picture the folded up arms. There's no sin of activity there. There's sin of attitude. And many times that's tougher to break because it's less evident than the sin of activity. So to all of us older brothers who have been good all of our lives, mostly, at least not evidently sinful, there's a message here today. And that is just because we've mostly stayed home does not mean we never left. Now, let's look at this in a balanced way. I can see, and you can probably see, why there were understandable reasons for the hardened feelings of the older brother. Because when you work and work and work for something, 
you can understand that when somebody just takes part of what you are working for and takes away from that effort and wastes that effort, it makes you mad. You understand that. I understand it. You understand, too, how absolutely frustrating it must have been for the elder son to know that the younger son was coming back to now take away his portion. The Bible plainly says, as I told you last week in Luke 15, verse 12, that the father divided his wealth between them. The younger son had a third. The older son had two-thirds. The younger son had completely blown his third. And now he was to come back and be a parasite of what the older son had worked so hard to get. You can understand the frustration. And you can also understand the frustration because the older son was never consulted. The father didn't go and ask for his vote. The father didn't say, what do you think we ought to do about your brother here? Let's get a plan of redemption. It was the father's sovereign decision that the younger son would be welcomed back. There was no ifs, ands, and buts about it. He is my son. I have killed the fatted calf. I have put the robe on him. He has the shoes. He was dead, and now he's alive, and the decision's made. And so when we feel that kind of decision made by the Father, it's understandable that our feelings are hurt and that I don't like to go along with this because I didn't have any part of it. It's understandable. But rather than focus on the other, the Bible, true to form, also has some underlying reasons why the younger one has a hardened heart. Now, before we get in on that, let me, let me say to you this. I know from my conversations with you that many of you wonder about staying in some relationships that you have. And you wonder where tenacity ends and abuse begins. Let me say to you a couple of things. First of all, Scripture never mandates that we stay in abusive relationships. Jesus was abused in an event for our salvation. But Jesus was not continually abused by a crowd. As a matter of fact, the Bible says when a crowd rushed for him to hurt him, what did he do? He disappeared. He went away, right? So the, the scripture never says that you need to stay in an abusive relationship. And whether that's a physical or an emotional abusive relationship, doesn't matter. But before you celebrate too much, let me define for you what abusive means. The abusive relationship is the one where the partner intends repeatedly or consistently to harm you. To harm you. To destroy you. It is not the kind of relationship 
that sometimes borders on destruction because the partner does not have the capacity to love you in the way you need to be loved. You see, the younger brother couldn't love the older brother in the way he needed to be loved. I mean, here was the older brother working his tail off, pardon me the expression, but just working in order to build, and he wanted a partner. He wanted a workmate. He wanted somebody who could help him make decisions. He wanted somebody to take the load. That wasn't the personality of the younger brother. And the younger brother would never change his personality. I mean, that was him. And so he did not, at the time of this reading, have the capacity to love the older brother in the way he needed to be loved. But by the same token, the older brother neither had the capacity to love the younger brother like he needed to be loved. The younger brother needed somebody to blow it off with, you know? Just, you know, sit around, tell some jokes, you know, enjoy life, you know, kind of just get down with them. There wasn't anything in the older brother knew how to do that. Wasn't a shred of evidence that he could get down. I mean, I have worked all of these years in the house and never disobeyed you once. There's something erotic about that, guys. I mean, there was, there was no evidence that he was anything but obsessive and compulsive. And so when it, come, when it came to loving the younger brother, it was not there. But you see, it wasn't an abusive relationship. There was a mixture of two people who had a very difficult time meeting the other's desires. But that was not an excuse for the father to dissolve the relationship. Now, let's go to this older brother and just take a look at the things that helped him harden his heart. Because they're very much things that as we are wounded and as we have been unfairly treated by other people also help us harden our heart. First of all, he would not confront the painful people or situations he came out of those fields and he said, what's going on? I said, well, there's a party going on for your younger brother. And he wouldn't go in. Would not confront his father. Would not confront his brother. It's too painful. I was talking to a gal this week who was um, in the process of committing suicide. And... As our conversation went on, I suggested Christian counseling for her, as I do for many people. And she said, no, I can't do that. And I said, why not? And she said, it's just too painful. I've tried that, and it's just too painful. And so here she was, instead of having... What she needed to have in order to face the pain, she just wanted to end it all. Well, she didn't. But how many of us are not ready to confront the people or the situations we need to because it just hurts too much? And so in order to do that, we harden our hearts and we turn away 
and we protect ourselves for the moment, but is a suffocating form of protection. It's a fearful way to live. Secondly, it was evident that the elder brother had not had a conversation with the father. What are we going to do if this guy comes home? The Greek means, when it says entreating, the Greek word is parakaleo, which means the, the father was walking beside him. Para means alongside, to pull up alongside. Kaleo means call. And so the father was along, walking alongside of him, calling to him, calling him back continually. In other words, the elder brother was in a world of his own. Wasn't in the father's world anymore. He's so angry and so furious that the father just had to walk along and kind of call him back. You know, kept trying to get on the same ground that he was on. And one of the reasons it is so easy for us to harden our hearts to other people is because we don't have a continuing conversation with the father. What are we going to do? if these people turn around? What's going to be our plan? What's going to be our action so that the surprise does not enter into the decision? See, one of the worst things you can do is make a decision when you're surprised. You have none of the equipment. You do not have the emotional reserve. You do not have the capacity to think and to ferret out alternatives during that time. One of the best things you can do is pray to the Father and have a plan what should happen if this situation arises. The the older son didn't do that. And thirdly, and this is very important, this older son savored specific hurts rather than thinking of the, the context the whole story of the younger brother. As I talk with people, the people who are most successful in forgiving are those who can eventually say, and I say eventually, can eventually say, you know, this really hurt me, but that's the way they were raised. That's what they knew. That's what was demonstrated to them. Um, they really were doing the best they could at the time. Or even if they weren't doing the best they could at the time, they were just making a mistake that was natural for them. Do you you get the idea? In other words, they see the offending party in more than a specific act. Those who are singularly unsuccessful at forgiveness are the ones that remember the act. Again and again and again and again. And that's what they concentrate on. All of these years I worked for you, and you never threw a party for me. There was a hurt there, see? He hadn't communicated it. But he kept dwelling on it. I want my father to do this. I want my father to do that. Notice how the father tells him about the general picture. You've always been my son. All that I have is yours. See how big that general picture is? That's what I want you to see of me. There is nothing in here that's reserved or holding back from you. I want you to see that. So therefore, when we are hurt, our habit, our tendency is just to focus on the event or the word that was said or the circumstance 
And what the Father would really have us do is to see the larger picture of that person and to see the larger picture of what God is doing in that circumstance. Now let's go to the last part. And let me, let me go in reverse order here because it's important um, to end up um, where the first point is. First of all, the overarching reasons for acceptance are threefold. One is that even though the Father seems too soft, His ways are perfect. You know, most of the reason that we will stay hurt is because we do not have the faith in God to go or to let Him take us where we cannot see. Many times, God seems too forgiving of a person and we think God must have missed something here. Other times, He seems too harsh of us too hard on us. Equally, he must have missed something. But the fact is, he knows what he's doing. I remember talking with a fellow some time ago. I was in his office. I was parakaleoing him. He was in the middle of making what I thought was the worst decision of his life. And I remember him saying to me, you know, There is no way I can think of doing what you or God are suggesting. If I could believe that there was some sort of map, that if I followed those ways, I would eventually end up where I wanted to be, then maybe I could do that. But when you tell me there's a map... All you can say is, I end up where God wants me to be, in the person He wants me to be, and I'm not sure I want to take that road. Very honest. But you see what happened. The decision was not made on the basis of facts. The decision was made on the lack of faith, that God knows what He's doing. And that ultimately, our happiness comes when God is happy with us. When I say His ways are perfect, the Greek word is teleo. It means to be perfected into that thing for which you were made, into that being for which you were made. And only when we honestly believe that God knows more than we do and that God can get us there better than we can get ourselves there, only when we have that faith will we ever be able to forgive? Because there's not a shred of natural forgiveness in us when we've been hurt. It isn't there. And God calls on us to believe that He knows what He's doing, that the Father who made the decision that we needed to forgive knows what He's doing better than we do hard. Secondly, there is always some part of us that says, well, you know what? That stinker got away with a lot. I mean, he took a third, 
blew his third. Now he's coming back for my two thirds. That's not fair. Evil prospered. When it says in scripture, why do the evil prosper? You know what the proper answer to that is? They don't. You haven't been close enough to them lately to understand what's happening in their lives. It seems like they are prospering for a while, but any of you who think people who consistently rebel against God are prospering, you don't know them. You are not walking close enough to them because there's no prosperity in that. There just isn't. I always come up 427 um, on the way to church. <clears throat> and lately as I go through, can't remember this, Wynwood or whatever the section of that is down there, between 436 and Dog Track, I've noticed that uh, in the last month there are quite a few uh, young ladies kind of hanging out, you know. And I think that they are um, streetwalkers. Uh, that's my presumption. Now, if these are school crossing guards, I really apologize. <clears throat> I've missed it completely. But I've seen them in the rain, and they never wear those big yellow raincoats with the galoshes. They never wear those, so I don't think they're school crossing guards. And my first reaction, because I've got three boys, two who are probably at the curiouser and curiouser stage, you understand what I'm saying here, can spring into fantasy at any given moment. My first reaction is to go up 1792 and get here. See, I came from a background, my grandmother would have fainted dead away if she ever thought that she even saw somebody who knew, somebody who saw, somebody in that business. See? Fainted dead flat. And after we would revive it, she would have fainted again, just remembering it. That's the kind of puritanical stock I come from. And so my first reaction is always to avoid it. Because I don't want my boys to go by and go on yak. You know, that's the first reaction. Second reaction is curiosity. So what do they do? <laughs> How do they live? How come they can do stuff we can't do? How come they can take drugs when we can't take? Because it's very evident that some of them are real stoned, you know? And to a boy... That's a, in his young teen looks pretty neat. You know, there's no pain there. It's anesthetized. And so it's kind of attractive at first. But I know that if we drive by often enough, they're going to get the idea there is no prosperity there. Because it's the same look every time. It's the same walk every time. It's the same emptiness every time. How would you like to be confined to a life where people used you for their own pleasure for a few bucks? After you think about that for a while, there's no prosperity in that. Sin has no prosperity. And I would like to get to the place where they not only recognize that, 
But their heart can go out to those people. They are people. And they can love them with their prayers. And they can be sensitive to other people who have had those kinds of experiences in their lives where they were used and they were thrown away. And they don't look down on them. They just love them. There is no prosperity in sin. Sin never pays, and I don't care what it looks like. The older brother would learn soon enough that when the younger brother came back, he had to start all over again. Every time you fall, you must start all over again. There is no accumulation of anything in sin. But lastly, and here's the point, here's the most important point, and if you don't hear anything else I say for the rest of the year, hear this. This looks on the surface to be a matter of good versus evil, of right and wrong. This looks on the surface to be ripe for someone to say he deserves to be rejected. We can't have him coming back after what he's done and infecting all of us, no matter how much he's repenting, no matter how straight he's going to go. We've got to have standards, you know. But God knows then when we've rejected people to the point of unforgiveness, it is not just them who are imprisoned. Some of you remember the second of the series in the the, uh, Star Wars movies where Darth Vader learns that um, Luke Skywalker is his son. For those of you who didn't see the picture, let me describe this. Now, time out here. I know those of you who listen to Christian radio get filled with all of these fears that this is an Eastern movie and it's infecting everybody with Eastern thought and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm not that deep, you know. I kind of see a movie and, yeah, I kind of like it or I kind of don't. So so I'm not seeing all the, you know. But here's this movie. And Darth Vader is the strong arm for the evil side of the universe. And he is under the command of the evil emperor. And it's set up as a classic struggle between good and evil. I mean, here's Darth Vader dressed in black. You know, those of us who liked old-time cowboy movies where the villains always wore black, we're primed for this stuff. Here's Princess Leah dressed in white, you know. (laughs) You know, like the gals here, pretty neat, you know. And Luke Skywalker, blonde, fair, you know, Mr. Good. They get to the end of the movie. And Darth Vader knows that Luke Skywalker is his son, and Luke Skywalker knows Darth Vader is his son. And the evil emperor, the evil emperor, commands Darth Vader to kill Luke Skywalker. And so they have this horrendous battle. And there's Luke Skywalker lying helpless. Darth Vader has been mortally wounded in all of this, you just don't see it right away, but there's Luke Skywalker, 
And the evil emperor comes and shoots him full of this electricity that tortures him, but not enough to kill him right away. And his father, who is Darth Vader, is standing there looking. And all of a sudden, now watch this. The decision is no longer good against evil. The decision is whether or not to love. You can feel and sense in Darth Vader a pull when the emperor is torturing his son. Ideologically, he's supposed to keep with the emperor. But it comes to a point when he breaks and he picks up the evil emperor and throws him over the edge. And then he lays down, mortally wounded. And he, for those of you who have not seen the movie, was wounded a long time ago and he devised an outfit that would help him breathe and that would disguise him and that would protect him. But when he looked on his son at the end, he said, take off my mask. And his son was reluctant because he says, you can't live without that. But Darth Vader realized that he was dying anyhow. And he said, I just want to see you with my own eyes. Now, there's a point at which we've got to come and say the point of our existence in this world is not who's right and who's wrong. It's not who's good and who's bad. It's whether or not we're going to love. There's a point at which when you were hurt and you build up all of those defenses, that hatred, you know how strong that hatred makes you. But there's a point at which you start to realize that the hatred not only makes you strong, it kills you. And it not only protects you, it suffocates you. And the decision is no longer who's right and who's wrong, but whether or not you will love. And sometimes you get to the point where you can say, I don't care. I'm dying in here anyhow. I don't care. I just want to be close. Whatever it costs, I want to be close. Do you realize how much hurt has been inflicted in this world in the name of right? How many people have stayed separated all of their lives because one was right and the other one wasn't? One was good and the other was bad. You know, that's why the Bible never says God is right. It presumes we know that. That's why the Bible says God is love. Because we can mess up right and wrong, but we can't mess up love. We just can't mess it up. There's a time when you say, I've been hurt. 
And I've devised all these defenses and they keep me going, but I don't want them anymore. I just want to be loved. And I want to love. And I'm ready to risk it. That's what the father wanted for the older son. That's why he said, let him come back. That's what he wants for us. Before we take communion, could we just have a little time of prayer? And I would like during that time for you to think about someone in your life that you've not completely forgiven. When you think of them, the armor goes up. And you know you need to. And you know God wants you to. And He hasn't asked for your vote on it. He just wants you to. Would you take this time to allow Him to say to you, I will enable you to forgive. Not only for their sake, but for yours. Now, here's the twist. Most of the time, we let you pray alone. But there is something about this that requires another person. You understand what I'm saying? Because if you're not willing to pray with another person, chances are you're not willing to really get close to that person who has caused you immense pain. So therefore, any of you who are brave enough, any of you who are guided this morning, I would like you to come forward and pray with someone. Let me just call you all up right now. Um, Rick, would you come out, sit at the piano? Elders, would you come up? Let me ask you to come up. And let me just, Linda, would you be available to pray with some women? And Becky and Dolly and John, would you be available to pray with some folks? Marv, thanks. I would really appreciate it. Would you go into your hearts right now? And if there is an elder brother in there, who doesn't want to let somebody off the hook, would you release that? It's the only way to your freedom. Let's pray for a while. You can come forward whenever you're led.